0: why are you at the Centers for Disease Control when I was a postdoc? You're a veterinarian, you're the only one in the branch. And I would say, well, you know, I understand uh, viruses and oh, by the way, I was here at a time when you didn't have human retroviruses. And, you know, we were telling you something you don't know, and by the way, to us, um, we're all warm bodies, virus doesn't care. And if they can get a receptor, if they can replicate, that's their goal. And so learning, you know, about uh things like cat viruses what they can tell us about helping cats yeah. but also helping uh, understand nature
1: sorry for saying sorry media presents the purr podcast the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips tricks and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team if you're dying to know more about cats keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kerpenstein.
2: And I think it's Dr. Susan Little. <laughs> yeah, I
3: think it's Dr. Susan Little too. Yeah, <laughs> it's good that you know each other. Yes, it is just, it's always the same thing, but it doesn't matter. We are here, part two of our wonderful series, talking to Dean Lairmore.
2: Yes, and I'm not laughing because it's Dean Lermar. I'm <laughs> laughing because Yola and I can never get the opening right. Okay, let, let's <laughs> rephrase that. Uh, Susan never gets the opening Thank right, you. yes, <laughs> I know. But, uh, no, I we're know. really
3: happy because we, we were so excited uh, uh, last <laughs> week when we were talking about lentiviruses. And, well, I was
2: excited. And mm-hmm. and
3: then we were almost there that you know Niels Peterson and then mm-hmm. I had to cut you off, so uh, let's yeah. pick that up. Yeah,
0: again. and I, I was really, again, very fortunate in my career to have been overlapped with uh, many of these famous uh, yeah. people and so when I was at the CDC working with Fred Murphy and he was the first one to look at Ebola virus under the electron micrograph mm-hmm. in 1976, and and in fact uh, that got me the job because I actually had a job opportunity at Illinois, but I was uh, interviewing for the job at CDC, and he was pointing at all the people around the lunchroom that were you know the discoverer of Legionnaires' disease and first Ebola. I said I want to work here. <laughs> so um, going there though it was a wonderful opportunity, and I I'm forever grateful for the CDC to have that opportunity, but. I wanted to get back to a university at a, and also a veterinary college, mm. and I wanted to um, be able to do that because, like colleagues, you know, you understand, um, you know, how do you make a difference. But as a veterinarian, I had this inherent still interest in animals and animal pathogenesis and viruses that cause. And so um, Richard Olson, um, you, know, sp- you know, started recruiting me to Ohio State and he was about retired by that time. He had um, helped uh, develop the first feline leukemia yeah. virus vaccine. Yeah. And what I really, really loved about that job uh, is they were all of like minds. They were all interested in solving problems around retroviruses of animals and great colleagues, great university to work for. And I am forever grateful for um, that opportunity. So And so much so that I met my wife there, and now I have four kids that are alumni (laughs) of uh, the Ohio State. The Ohio State. So, anyway, it was a a great Okay, enough talking about the Ohio State. (laughs) Let's move on. (laughs) And uh, you were asking me about how I became dean in 2011 when the kids were grown in Mm -hmm. college. um, Got a call from a friend uh, at UC Davis that said this might be a good fit. And, you know, we're at you know, things happen in your career that have to be at the right time in your career too. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we looked at it, but I I mentioned to my wife, you know, we're not gonna go there unless, you know, you're serious because I know I might like it. (laughs) And it was a wonderful opportunity. It was a really good fit. Uh, The One Health approach was Mm -hmm. alive and well. and It's kind of within the DNA. And it was at the right time to go there. It Mm -hmm. was after the recession. They were very eager eager for a strategic direction Um, And so um, my background in animal viruses and the One Health approach working at CDC worked well. And I'm very, very, I got the best job in the world.
2: You know, it strikes me listening. And for those of you, hopefully you've listened to episode one of this podcast, because if you haven't, you really need to listen to episode one. It strikes me that if you just take a superficial sort of reading of the story you tell, it looks like um, you were given these amazing chances and like things fell into your Mm -hmm. lap. But it's the person who recognizes it, who does the hard work, who takes the advantage, right, who grabs the brass ring. Mm -hmm. Without you doing that, none of this happens, right? So you have to have that drive. So I love that when I hear stories like Mm -hmm. that because it's not only did everything happen at the right time, but you had the bravery and the the courage or whatever you want to call it to say, yeah, I'm doing it. Well,
0: you know, I think about that with our students. Uh, When they talk about, should I take this internship? Should I, you know, I want to be, You know, fill in the blank. And what I ask them is always to have the same filter, which is what's your passion? Because if you're passionate about it, you know, if it really drives you, it's easy. It's it's easy to get up in the morning and say, it may not be easy from the point of view of the the work, because you still have to work really hard, and you guys work really hard, I know that. But if you're passionate about it, it's going to be a lot easier to face it when things do set you back. And so I asked students that, I said, you know, you may, and by the way, your passions may change mm-hmm. as you grow, as you go through your career, as life events happen. I mentioned, you know, when my son was born, I, mm-hmm. I looked around and said, you know, maybe I should look at a, a different job. And so I tell my students that to be flexible enough to understand that when these things happen in your life, but the common core is, are you happy and you're passionate about that? Fortunately, veterinarians are often we're passionate mm-hmm. about helping the animals, about you know, the environment, about, you know, whatever we do. Human the, health, everything. All the careers that we do. We're very passionate. And that's the thing that I'm very proud of being a veterinarian.
2: And I love the fact that our profession gives you many ways to be a veterinarian. Right. Right. And I, I hope that students Um, have a way of learning that, or or pre-vet students even, right? I I often think that they just think they're gonna go into practice and they're gonna Mm -hmm, be a practicing vet, but my gosh, there's so many ways to be a veterinarian. Yeah,
3: right. I also think that it's important to think about the role models. I mean, you're a role model for a lot of students. One of my role models was Professor Marian Horsenek, who's also a very Mm -hmm. famous virologist, and he brought virology Uh, To life in such a passionate way that, you know, I will always have a certain attraction to that part of an emergency, although I've never done anything with it. But I always think fondly of that. And I remember his, you know, reader Bible, which was full of very small letter type, hundreds of viruses that we had Mm -hmm. to learn by heart. But still, the way he talked about it, it made it doable. and, And his exams were very tough. But we loved the guy. Mm-hmm. And, and later on he became a really good mentor for me in a lot of the steps that I made mm-hmm. um, had nothing to do with virology but just because he was such an amazing guy uh, inspira- insp- inspired so many people and yeah. touched so many yeah. people so what you do I think is super important for a lot of the near students around and so we mm-hmm. uh, you know I really appreciate that
0: and we talked about that in the first podcast Is in, and again um the fact that you're telling a story, you know, yeah. and you're storytellers. And, yeah. and the story uh, when you're teaching uh, is, it, you know, I learned early on, because it was a very bad teacher to start with. It was very academic, it was
2: didactic didactic, and, yeah.
0: and, and very nervous. And what I learned is that, oh, when do they be pay attention? <laughs> they pay attention when they knew that, oh, it's a client behind that, oh, it's an, there's a story behind that animal. Yeah. And instead I started to use problem-based stories about viruses and then bringing in clinicians that actually dealt with those viruses Mm -hmm. so he had a personal thing and said oh parvovirus you know let's do this case study around it but it's not about you know this dry history it's about this particular animal came in with this infection and it presented these signs and the owner said this about the animal and i think i appreciate that because i was in private practice and so even though I was a limited time in private practice, that helped me forever telling that story. Just to put a little clinical spin
3: on this, uh, what are viruses in cats that you worry <laughs> the
0: most about? Well, I think the viruses in cats that, you know, right now we're focused on coronaviruses because yeah. of the history. And, you know, in, and at UC Davis, uh, you know, we have some pioneers that oh. are using the same drugs that are uh, effective, um, and this is uh, published so we can talk about it, um, that Gilead made available, and these are um, drugs that are now being used on the front lines for SARS-CoV-2. Mm-hmm. But if you, look, if you think about it, we know about coronaviruses in cats, and we know that th- how they, they replicate. We know that they can be a problem as they mutate and evolve, um, and they're deadly mm-hmm. in some cases. Other cases, they're carried yep. with the cat. Benignly. And so what I'm fascinated about with cats is um, being a retrovirus person, obviously with feeling leukemia virus and feeling immunodeficiency virus, is the evolution of the host and the pathogen yeah. over time. Yeah. And what are the epidemiological factors that lead, you know, like male cats to be more infected by, you know, the, the viruses and obviously the their environment, yep. their ability to get out in nature and bite and scratch. and transmit the viruses, but what did we also learn from cats? And in fact, the feline leukemia virus, if we can return to that story, the people that I was, some of my mentors were Ed Hoover, oh, uh, Jennifer Oiko at Ohio State University, and they were, uh, there's a famous diagram, you've probably seen it, it's sort of the transparent cat. And basically they, they outlined the pathogenesis of how the virus comes in, where it replicates, they traced it, they understood, oh, you know, it actually is in the salivary gland, that makes sense because then that's easily transmitted. So that fascinating story of cats is parallel in other species, bovine leukemia virus, mm-hmm. equine infectious anemia virus. And what do we learn mm-hmm. from each one of those, which is really natural models in the, yeah. in the world. Yeah. And we're finding that, oh, by the way, these are we're another mammal yeah guess (laughs) what (laughs) and people often ask me that they said "Um, why are you at the centers for disease control when i was a postdoc you're a veterinarian you're the only one in the branch and i would say well you know i understand uh, viruses and oh by the way i was here at a time when you didn't have human retroviruses and you know we were telling you something you don't know and by the way to us um, we're all warm bodies virus (laughs) doesn't care (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and if they can get a receptor, if they can replicate, that's their goal. And so learning, you know, about uh, things like cat viruses, what they can tell us about helping cats, yeah. but also helping uh, understand nature.
2: You know, we, we've mentioned Niels Peterson a couple of, of times, and so he's definitely one of my heroes and one of my mentors for, for sure. I'm so blessed in my should life. should
0: definitely interview him.
2: Oh, absolutely. I've, I'm just so blessed in mm-hmm. my life to have had the chance to 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 know him and mm-hmm. to learn from him too. Uh, but he's often said, I've heard him say that he was at the right place in the right at the right time, you know, when uh, at the right place, the right, uh, the right university when FIV you know, yeah. became discovered. And, and uh, I suspect he'd say the same with FIP. And I think I suspect he'd say the same right now because of coronaviruses, mm-hmm. the work that, you know uh, uh, his group and other groups have done on the I'm uh, sorry, the antivirals mm-hmm. for that disease. and like, where are we right yeah. now? Yeah. Right? We're learning lessons and, and the lessons were there, ready ready to borrow.
0: Yeah. He's it's being crazy. too modest there. You know, he, <laughs> he's another one. His passion, uh, and he developed it early, was to, you know, solve problems. Yeah. Uh, but he was passionate about cats early yeah, on. always. Yeah. And uh, that 1987 science paper about feline immunodeficiency virus was not by accident. Yeah. And it wasn't by he serendipity. Would, he would.
2: He would make you yeah. think that, but it's not true. Yeah. So if
0: you trace it back a little earlier in nineteen, uh, in the '60s, you know, with um, Jarrett and you know him discovering feline leukemia yeah, virus. Dr. Oswald. Yeah. What What really um, What was really important about that um, was that they were observing nature, but they were clinicians observing nature. Yeah. Why were these cats dying of diseases? And there were large cat households, multi-cat households. And they were just asking questions, you know, why is it that some of them are wasting away and yeah. they're dying? And then he began to ask questions, and then later, you know, discovered feeling leukemia virus, and just a real interesting connection. When I was called to the CDC as a graduate student, and invited to present to Robert Gallo, uh, he, that mm-hmm. name you may know, mm-hmm. about these obscure viruses and sheep that are now AIDS viruses. The senior fellow in the lab was um, was Garrett, Jarrett, and his daughter, um, who was also a professor. At, and they were doing a senior fellowship at NCI, and he wanted to bring in veterinarians that knew about these viruses to to talk about that, and um, we were in a lab meeting with Rob, Robert Gallo, and there's you know eighty graduate students behind him, and you know he was a big guy you know and he but I was a poorly funded graduate student. Talking about these viruses, and he kept interrupting, and saying, "Oh no, this human virus doesn't infect macrophages. This, oh no, ours only does this." And you know, we didn't want. We were polite. Sure. You know, we said, "Well, but based upon these animals, you may want to think about the macrophage." Anyway, at lunch, you know, sitting down with Jarrett, and uh, he said, "You know, you might think about that because in his cultures, there's monocytes."
2: <laughs> and
0: uh, six weeks later, Tony Fauci yes who we hear on the news today yes got up at ASV and said oh big discovery HIV infects macrophages there you go and not that we told him that but it was already in the literature in the veterinary literature but it was Bill Jarrett who was there with Ruth that was his daughter who had the foresight to say we need to learn from veterinarians <sighs> mm-hmm. and then you know and, and, and Bob Gallo actually does credit feeling the leukemia virus. I hope so. He
2: does. Yeah. You were really yeah. at, at some amazing time points. Mm-hmm. I it was just fun. love this yeah, stuff. It was fun. I'm a closet virologist. Yeah. <laughs> you can always come back. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> it's never too late. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So how yeah.
3: much time do you have to do your passion, like the environment? Well, ah,
0: I had to change. I evolved uh, yeah. over time. And so um, I had a big lab uh, when I was recruited to UC Davis. You know, I, I had to make a decision at that point after 20 years of research. Do I want to continue to do that or is my now my passion of people and programs? Mm-hmm. And the, the job is so big. It's a big university, it's a big um, vet school. I can't uh, imagine trying to do research at the level mm-hmm. I was doing it sure. at. So I, I, you know, I had to turn my back like yeah. I did from practice yeah. to shift careers. And now my passion is. People and programs, and my biggest thrill is to hire somebody and see them successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when you go to the lab, not not everybody's saying, "Oh, don't say anything. easier. here."
1: No, <laughs>
0: no, actually, but I really respect that. I do yeah. miss talking to graduate students. Yeah. I do miss the lab meetings, publishing papers. Um, mm-hmm. But again, you have to look at it like you're supporting the the next generation sure. now, sure, and you're true. helping them accomplish the same sure. things. And when you see, you know, a young professor. Discover something you know that you had to hire. You feel good about that. Sure. So
2: sure, it's a great example of evolving through your career. You know, and and again, I think it's it's good for people considering veterinary medicine or even vet students now to to have that broader perspective. Right. right? It's a career you can grow and change in. And
0: we're really interested. I'm current president of AAVMC and the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges, and. We're very interested in attracting students to academic veterinary medicine. Yeah, we need to replace ourselves. Yeah, we need more people uh, interested in being the professors of the future, and so we need to do a better job of telling our story to the students early on because they may want to be in education, they may want to be in research, or they may want to serve society and it. You know, working for a land grant university, we need to do a better mm. job of telling that story. So, don't stay in the ivory tower. Mm. You know, explain our story and inspire them to become future professors and future yeah. academic leaders.
2: It, it's hard because there's been a bit of at least you know through my my career in veterinary medicine I've seen a shift away from academia, right? Yeah. Because it used to be that if you wanted to, you know, level up a degree, you wanted to, mm-hmm. you had to go to academia. Mm-hmm. And now we've got, you know, secondary tertiary care hospitals mm-hmm. that are as good or sometimes better equipped, may mm-hmm. I say? Yeah, they are. Right? No,
0: the specialty practice, we often say we're training our competitors. Yeah. They go into specialty practices, and, and you're right, that you have resources. The difference is the discovery part.
2: Absolutely. Yes.
0: And when you're in specialty practices, you you may not have as your mission to do those experiments that are at the very beginning of the idea to create the next cancer drug or yeah. the... And you don't have time, that's not your job. Your no, job, job is to be a, a specialist. And, and I am a specialist, I'm a pathologist and a microbiologist board certified. I know exactly what those disciplines require. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it, working in an institution where the discovery is palpable companies, um, Hills, You know you, you, if you didn't have a research and development focus mm-hmm you know the company eventually just stalls out yeah we don't
3: have a future it's all about innovation and I think it's interesting that you say that because I had a long academic career Mm -hmm. um, and I'm now in a company that also innovates a lot in a different kind and I always kept that innovation mindset Mm -hmm. in my new job yeah yeah. Uh, but it's funny because you showed me the slide that was just projected today about when we started this hands-on lab at Utrecht without any animals, mm-hmm. which was quite revolutionary for that time. Um, and now it comes back. Then you think back, yeah, yeah, those were crazy mm-hmm. ideas that we had, mm-hmm. which a university setting allows you to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I have always enjoyed my university career because, you know, I really could do anything I wanted mm-hmm. within, you know, mm-hmm. the reason. Um, and, what you need for innovative mindset is to be allowed to fail, yeah. and yeah. university allows you to do that. Mm-hmm. So you, you get a little bit of money, you can try it mm-hmm. out. If it doesn't work, good universities say, okay, now it's enough, you have yeah. to try something else. Yeah. Um, and because you have now the number one university, what mm-hmm. is the secret
0: behind Well, I, th- <laughs> I think it does come down to people, mm-hmm. you know, and as you know, uh, because you were in academia and you know from mm-hmm. all your experiences, It's really the people, and and so if you have, what I like to say about UC Davis is that um, when you walked when I walked in the door, every single discipline had an attitude. They wanted to do more. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be the best in their profession. So if it was, you know, with thirty disciplines, you know, or or more, you know, they wanted to be the best cardiologist. They wanted to be the best geneticist. They wanted to be a microbiologist. Whatever it was. But the attitude was discovery, and and the basis of I want to be the best teacher researcher, so it's a high performance environment, mm-hmm. and it feeds off of each other. If you're around a lot of other high performers, you really want to you know you gain from that, yeah. uh, and you you feed off of that, and it's it's exciting to be in that environment. It's it's scary sometimes because mm-hmm. you feel like how can I compete against the, you know my colleagues. But I think the environment, um, but it starts with the people mm-hmm. and. What we're trying to do is make a foster a supportive environment, paying attention to things like the, the wellness yeah. of the individual as well to, you know, like, you know, career development of the individual. So everybody has their own individual career development, but you really want to support them. And as a Dean, I feel an obligation to find them resources to, you know, sending them to the leadership conferences to the students, exposing them to careers that could be global Mm -hmm. or it could be, you know, in California, Mm -hmm. but it's really our obligation to see, and then they they sort themselves out, you know, Um, but the environment and the people um, and um, that creative atmosphere is really in the support of the university. Mm -hmm. We have a highly supportive university and I'm very happy with that.
2: What's the hardest thing you have to do? In a, as, as a dean.
0: Oh, That's a great question. Yeah. The thing that probably is, is you know, the most uh, difficult is when you have to make a decision where you don't have unlimited resources and you have to, you know, you have to tell somebody we can't do that, uh, say no. Um, to say no yeah. And so the framework that we use is strategic planning and we really have a plan that, you know, it's about, our mission statement is quite clear. It's advance the health of animals, people, and the environment. It's you know, with that filter, then with each of the strategies, we have to think, how can we justify that expenditure? And so sometimes it's money that bothers me, you know, I wish I would have had more because that is a good idea, but we don't, we can't go there yet. Probably the most difficult in my, um, uh, now going on nine years as dean was, we had a student murdered. Oh, wow. Yeah, and she was three months from graduation. When was this? This was about four four years ago, oh, and it was a shock to the system that just ripples throughout an entire community, and yeah. actually nationally, we had other vet oh. schools that responded to that terrible event, and you know your media thought is you know the support of the students, support of the family, and so you know that, those are that's the worst memory I have I'm of sure. being a dean, and it's also the best memory because of the, the way everybody came together. Mm-hmm. But for a while, and at commencement, we had her parents walk with her service dog across the stage. I couldn't speak about it. In fact, the very first time at commencement, I was three months of silence because I couldn't talk. And, you know, it's because I kept envisioning my my daughters were the same age. And to have that immediate um, terrible event happen. So probably that would be the worst memory and the worst situation possible when you have something like that happen. Now, that's balanced by all of the wonderful things that we see, you know, I like to say a miracle happens every day, <laughs> it mm-hmm. seems like, and, and you, you you know that because you, you're veterinarians, but when you see the miracles, you have to embrace those yeah. as well to yeah. balance It's
2: it. a good lesson, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think we easily get overwhelmed by the negative and the not so good. It always seems to have a bigger presence, Yeah. even in your professional life. Yeah. So I think it's really good to recognize the good stuff and take a minute and say, yeah. that's be thankful. Be thankful for it. Yeah, yeah. and I'm thankful
0: win. for you guys interviewing me. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, we are too. <laughs> no, we are too. I, I have to say that that um, you you've approached this very well because we get mm-hmm. we we get a lot of nervousness when mm-hmm. we ask in people the beginning. in the beginning. We get a lot of nervousness, and people want questions in advance, and they want to know what we're going to do. And, and you just like that. sailed in here mm-hmm. and sat down. Mm-hmm. And
3: I have one more fun. question <laughs> yeah, before we, we end uh, yeah. end the show, uh, and that is. Um, tell us a little bit more about what your goals were as president of AAVMC. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and 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 a question that goes with that is uh, one of the things that is highlighted a lot in veneer medicine is now the negative part of venere medicine mm-hmm. and the struggles that young yeah. people have.
0: Well, I think the the you know when you are in a in a and you're representing, mm-hmm. you know we have. Fifty-three members now, and it's an international organization yeah. with not only United States but Canada, Mexico, Caribbean, Australia, New Zealand, Europe. Yeah. Um, you oh, know, we close
3: the first. Uh, exactly, uh, exactly. University. Yeah,
0: yeah, you track. <laughs> um, but I think when we think about uh, what our obligation is, um, it you know when you think of it that globally, it's to represent what the what the members need. You know what the profession needs. And so right at the top of the list, if you look at the new strategic framework, it's all about education. Mm. And that's what we are, an association about education. At the heart of that is the student and how do we become better educators. And so part of that education, sure, there's the technical aspects of being a veterinarian and all of the things we know that we have to pass for accreditation. But it's also all of the other things, you know, and mental health and wellness, for example, so we, we do um, investments in wellness summits, you know, and we, with partnership with the AVMA. So part of my goal would, was not to say, this is my, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's been my philosophy, it's about us. And how do we bridge us together to, to do greater things? And greater things could be as simple as new programs to recruit students, showing them the wonderful opportunities that I've had as, you know, in academic veterinary medicine, to, uh, in, in helping our, our faculty with wellness programs to telling our story to the world uh, that veterinarians play a vital role in everything from COVID-19 uh, right now and what role we play to add data to that to new treatments that are parallel to that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're relevant to Absolutely. what's going on in the headlines every this day. This minute, yeah. Yeah, and so part of the role of uh, being in this, you know, I'm very privileged to be in this position. I'm very humbled by it is to what can I do in this short time period, you know, your presidency is really only a year, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you have a three-year window, prior president, past president, but during that time is working together with the members and all your colleagues, and I'm so thankful because there's so many people I respect in this organization Mm -hmm. that it makes it easy. Uh, In fact, uh, you know many of them. And I'm proud of the fact that, you know, at the podium today when I was looking out, I could call him by first name.
2: Yeah, it was, it's pretty good. It's, it's yeah. fun. It is still a small world, veterinary mm-hmm. medicine, and I'm um, often re- re-impressed, impressed all over again by what good people we have. Yeah, yeah. We have amazing people.
0: And also the public trust is dependent yeah. upon that, and we can't forget
2: that. No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And you were followed by Dean Markell. That's right. Uh, That's also
3: right. a famous person, and he is even more famous now because of... Uh, the little stunt that they did during yeah, the, Super, the Bowl. Super Bowl. Yeah, the Super
0: Bowl, yeah. Mark, by the way, I just want to point out, is a UC Davis graduate. And it, a distinguished yeah. alumni. Excellent. Uh, he would be very happy to yeah. that too. By the way, I told Mark, I said, um, you know, thank you for helping tell a story <laughs> yes. about comparative oncology yes. and a big bigger audience, yeah. right? And also, can we have those WeatherTech car mats, because I really like them. So I told them all, I said, Mark is going to give out WeatherTech car mats to everybody. That's awesome. And you get one, and you get one, and you get one. (laughs) And everybody's (laughs) like, yay, we like it, we like it. So he's never going to forgive me. Probably not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're making friends very easy. (laughs) (laughs) This was wonderful. Thank you so much. It was delightful. It
3: was amazing. I'm so glad you agreed to join us. Like I said, you were our first dean, and you did stellar. I'm honored. You, and know, you put the, the bar very way high, high. Well, so you made it when, easy. when Rustin comes on, you better yeah. meet well, that it, standard. It, it's a
2: special treat for me, because you and then Rustin were the first Deans I noticed on social media, mm-hmm. and, I, and I, right from the get-go, was very yeah. impressed by what, yeah. you, what you do. It, it just, I went, wow, like
0: yeah. Yeah. I want
2: to follow that man. A lot, of,
0: <laughs> a lot of common purposes, yeah, for sure. But thank you for what you guys do. and. Um, you know, your ambassadors to our profession. Yeah. You, you know, you have try. A, a great audience, and uh, we appreciate all what you do. Thank you. So we appreciate that. And yes. Susan, do you want to say
3: anything? Oh no, <laughs> um,
2: How come you never do the ending part? How come yeah. you always make me do the ending start. part? I <laughs> start. <laughs> well, I know. But do you remember the website? On one of course, episode, dear listeners, net. he forgot the you forgot the website on I one. I did. I yeah. did,
3: and I'm kay. moving. And now this. I
2: know. Again. Okay, so I we better know. end it because your, yes. s- your chair is so creak. So,
3: follow us uh, on social media. Uh, we have a beautiful Instagram.
2: Yes. We have a Facebook. At per podcast. We
3: ha- are on Twitter. Yes. And uh, we have a website. Which is? Uh, Perpodcast.net. <laughs> well done. And then we have a YouTube channel for our <laughs> oh, YouTube Oh, we do. Video. I forgot I about the YouTube video. channel. See, you forgot those. Yes. yes. Last time. But thank you very much, uh, Dean Lambert. This was amazing. My pleasure. And, uh, uh, you know, you opened the path for many more deans to follow. <laughs> Great. One. So I'm a groundbreaker once yeah. again.
1: Thank you so much. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks The Cat Clinical Medicine and Management and august consultations in feline internal medicine along with three cats she also admits to owning two dogs and you can follow her on social media with the handle at Step 3 is to treat the cat for at least 2-3 to weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options.